All right, and welcome back, everybody, to the fourth season of the Building Life on Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. This whole season is going to be all about testosterone. It's a very common topic that I see a lot in my clinic and on the internet. People talk about it all the time, so we're going to dive deep on this for the next, you know, foreseeable weeks. We'll see how many weeks it takes, but we're going to talk all about testosterone. Today, we're starting at the beginning, since we're talking about testosterone physiology. So what is testosterone? You know, what are the labs we look at in terms of some markers we look for? How is it synthesized? How is it you know, the feedback? How is it regulated? All those things, kind of the, the basic science of it. So like I said, sometimes this can get into the weeds a little bit. So, but I, I just, I urge you to stick with me here because it really helps understand. If we understand the physiology behind something, it helps us understand everything else, right? So it's hard to understand pathology, meaning what's wrong, if we don't understand how it should work in the first place. So that's what we're going to go through today. We're going to start. So let's get going right now. First and foremost, what is testosterone? Everyone's heard about it, right? Everyone knows the word testosterone. What actually is it? Well, it's the primary male sex hormone, like I said, but it's also still present in women too. So I just want to put that out there. Everyone thinks of hormones and, you know, testosterone is male, estrogen is female, and that's not true. Both male and females both have testosterone, estrogen, just in different relationships and different concentrations. So but it is a steroid hormone that is derived from cholesterol, right? So there's a bunch of different steroids. A steroid essentially is derived from cholesterol and has, you know, in terms of how the molecule is set up, it has rings that are arranged in a specific molecular configuration. So if you're taking a biochemistry class, you'll understand what a steroid looks like. And testosterone is no different. It is a steroid hormone derived from cholesterol. If you go back to season one, talking about lipids, we talk about cholesterol and all that and what that is. And the importance of that with testosterone as well. So it is coming from cholesterol. So once again, cholesterol is important. Um, it's much more nuanced than that we talked about, but it does come from there, but it has a, just a specific configuration. That's why I call it a steroid hormone. And so overall, here we're going to talk about some of the main hormones that have to do with controlling and regulating testosterone. And the ones we're going to talk about, the big main ones are gonadotropin releasing hormone or GNRH, luteinizing hormone or LH, follicle stimulating hormone, FSH, testosterone, and inhibin. So once again, that's going to be GNRH, LH, FSH, testosterone, and inhibin. That's going to make a lot more sense here. We're going to talk through it in a little bit. Additionally, on top of that, like where do these things come from? We're going to walk through like kind of how, where these hormones come from, how they interact with each other and how they kind of regulate testosterone physiology. So here we go. Essentially in your brain, you have an area called the hypothalamus. From the hypothalamus, GNRH is secreted. So it's released there. This GNRH then travels to the pituitary gland, which then stimulates LH and FSH secretion. So going back there, hypothalamus, GNRH, going to the pituitary, so then stimulates LH and FSH. Then LH, or luteinizing hormone, acts on the Leydig cells in the testes, which then makes testosterone. So in terms of the path to testosterone, it's going hypothalamus, secretes GNRH, then pituitary, secretes LH, and then LH acts on the Leydig cells of the testes, which makes that testosterone. So there's that aside. Also, though, we talked about the pituitary does secrete FSH. So what does FSH do? Well, it acts on the Sertoli cells, a different type of cells inside the testes, and helps produce sperm and a hormone called inhibit. And so, like I said, working through that whole process here, this is called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, or the HPG axis, or some people in other avenues that I've seen in literature that I've read, they talk about the hypothalamic pituitary testicular, or HPT axis. What they mean by axis, that just means, hey, they kind of work together in concert, right? It's going from the hypothalamus to the pituitary to the gonads of the testes and kind of works in this feedback loop there. And that's like what they talk about the HPG or HPT axis. It is an intricate feedback loop where these hormone levels can then inhibit or trigger the synthesis of other certain hormones. So track with me here. What I mean by that is, for example, when enough testosterone is produced, it sends feedback to the hypothalamus and the pituitary to decrease how much GNRH and LH needs they make. 
like I said, same thing is also happening for inhibin from the Sertoli cells, right? So we get that and we have lots of sperm being made and you're saying, hey, like we're good. Once there's enough of that, it goes back to the anterior pituitary, decreases the amount of FSH that's being made. It is finely tuned, but we can definitely start to see issues when hormone levels are off. But like I said, and putting it in layman's terms, essentially what we're saying is, hey, we need the signal to make something, right? Your body needs a signal to say, hey, I need to make this. We'll say for testosterone specifically, that's what we're talking about. So we go through there and we start with the GnRH, right? Then it goes to the LH and then we start making testosterone. Once we have enough testosterone, your body's saying, hey, like we're good. We have the normal levels that I feel is appropriate. We're fine here. We need a way of kind of turning that off, right? Because if you think about like a production, like assembly line, if it just keeps going and going, we're all seeing like the old, um, you know, black and white comedy shows are like oh it keeps backing up and keeps going but that's essentially what happened in your body if you just keep making testosterone like you need to kind of have a way to kind of control that and decrease synthesis if need be and that's what this feedback loop does right once we have enough testosterone it triggers you know going back to the hypothalamus and pituitary saying hey pump the brakes here slow down these precursors or these these signaling molecules slow those down because we have enough so that's what i think about there i say and it's very finely tuned i made that very gross and easy like oh yeah they just give us something's the thumbs up like we're good um but it's not that it's obviously much more complex than there but that's kind of how it is. So, but if you get them off, they can lead to issues. So for example, if your LH or FSH are really high, then that probably means there's a problem with either producing too much GnRH or it means that we're having, you know, the testes are not responding and they should be. So I can think about it here. If your LH or FSH are super high, it could be coming from a couple ways. If you think about the pituitary in the middle, right? Something before that, that is coming from the hypothalamus, the GnRH. So you could have super, super high LH because the signal from the hypothalamus is saying, hey, keep making more, keep making more, keep making more, even if that's inappropriate. Like maybe there's an issue in the hypothalamus. Maybe there's a tumor around there or something like that that's secreting this issue or this GnRH more and more and more. So you can have that side of things where it's just like, hey, keep making more, even that they don't want it to. Or on the other side, let's say you have normal GnRH and then all of a sudden you're secreting LH from uh, the pituitary and then your testes are just like, nah, man, I'm good. Like, I'm not, not going to do anything. And if that's the case where the testes are not functioning properly, then what your body says is, well, all they know is, well, shoot, I'm not getting what I normally need, but normally I need to produce LH to get more testosterone. So I'm going to pump up more LH. And so it keeps pumping more and more and it gets really, really high. Those levels are really, really high because we're essentially trying to overcome this issue and say, well, you know, I, I know that this is how I make it. So I'm going to keep doing that. And that's essentially when we're looking at those labs. If we have those super high LH levels, we're thinking about a problem, like I said, either initially from the hypothalamus or the test is not responding. And like I said, it just kind of where this problem is, is, you know, depending on what the lab shows kind of how we determine where the problems is. But like I said, that's how it thinks about there. And like I said, this is a whole, this is a whole course, like a college doctoral level course of like feedback loops and endocrine and all that stuff is very, very, like very nuanced and whatnot. And like I said, interpreting labs is a whole other topic as well. But for our purposes, I just want you to know that your body does a generally a really good job of balancing these hormones. And this is the general process of how they do that. And so now let's talk about where and when testosterone is made. So we kind of hinted at before, but testosterone is made in the testes and these come from the Leydig cells of the testes, Leydig, Leydig, whatever you pronounce it, but those are coming from the testes. They are made in varying amounts throughout your lifespan, typically starts making at a substantial level though, when you hit puberty, I think everyone has seen or smelled a 13 year old boy and understands that there's something changing going on here. And that's typically when testosterone is starting to go there from a feedback mechanism point. We talked about that. 
like we talked about with like very, very controlled, um, bunch of different factors also play that as well. We talked about LH specifically, the trigger for it, um, how tightly controlled it is from a hormonal perspective, but there are other outside things that can influence the balance of those as well. So things like medications that you're on, if you have a very high stress, sleep or poor sleep, your dietary choices, obesity, all these things can affect different levels of these hormones and testosterone in general. And that's why we kind of want to think about what's going on there overall. And then the question might be is what does actually testosterone do, right? I mean, if you are listening to this podcast, obviously you're probably someone who's active and has heard about in the context of, you know, well, we want to raise our testosterone, testosterone, people take testosterone for, you know, big muscles and lifting and all that stuff. And it does a lot more than that, but that's the general what people think. So first things first is that it gives secondary male sex characteristics. So the secondary characteristics are things like deep in voice, body and facial hair, um, increased oil output, unfortunately from sebaceous glands. So people start getting acne or whatnot and development of the sexual organs in terms of, um, actually the growth of those maturation of sperm and increased libido. And so these things are kind of the androgenic or quote unquote masculinizing properties of the hormone. So we do have these, you know, masculinizing or androgenic effects. And there's also changes called anabolic changes. So that's what most people think of. So most people think about, Hey, if I'm going to take these, take testosterone, I'm going to get huge. I'm going to get big. It does lead to enhanced muscle protein synthesis, which is essentially leading to muscle accumulation. So, um, can help and assist with getting muscles bigger, but that's not um, slam dunk. And then on top of that, it does, explain in potential body composition changes between men and women. Um, we will talk about that here with the different sex differences, but testosterone does play a role with lean body mass. And so that's why we do see some of the sex differences there. But like I said, a lot of times people say, Hey, I'm gonna take steroids or take testosterone and they take it expecting it huge. And then they realize like there are these other side effects as well. Like I said, in terms of can also increase male pattern baldness, you're developing potential more hair, some places that you don't want to have or acne, all those things are the kind of unthought about side effects of taking testosterone. But like I said, um, that's from a different perspective of, of inappropriate use. So, but it can see that as well if you're taking it in general. And then sex differences, like I mentioned, there are obviously sex differences between testosterone and estrogen levels between sexes. Men produce about 2.5 to 11 milligrams per day of testosterone, while females typically make about 0.25 milligrams per day. So men produce way more testosterone. And so testosterone is the primary sex hormone for males, whereas estrogen is the main sex hormone for women. And however, there is a combo obviously of both going on and the combo of estrogen and less testosterone probably contributes to women having a higher body fat percentage and they're able to accumulate less lean tissue and have shorter stature and may play a factor in bone strength as well. And so, like I said, testosterone and estrogen work together, but because males have so much more testosterone, that seems to, we think, play a role as to why there's those different body composition changes between men and female. And so how does testosterone actually work in the body though? Well, testosterone when free in the blood can bind to target tissues all throughout the body. So it's not like it's just in muscles, it's all over the place. How it works is it actually binds to a cellular receptor. So it goes in the cell, binds to it. And then the cell has to have a proper antigen receptor for the testosterone to bind. So kind of like a lock and key, right? It can't just go in there and just say, hey, I'm here, let's do this. It has to have a proper receptor there, an antigen receptor. The cellular receptor then, what happens there, it's not on the cell membrane, but kind of in the cytosol. So if you've ever remember, go back to biology class, in the cytosol, it is kind of like the liquid floating around inside the cell. Um, and what happens is it binds, and we have this newly formed testosterone plus binding site, kind of this combo. This migrates into the nucleus and then attaches to the cell's DNA, which then activates the transcription of genes. And so this whole process kind of sounds complicated, and it kind of is. And that's one of the things of hormones. They take a while to act and start to act because they need to first bind and then get into the nucleus and then bind 
bind to the DNA and then start making new proteins to actually have stuff happen. So even when it binds, it's like, okay, cool. I got the message. Now I got to start making the response of what's actually going to happen. And so once it's done though, this complex then moves back into the cytosol and can either hang out there waiting to exert more effects or the testosterone can detach, go back in the bloodstream and kind of recirculate. This whole process takes a long time. Like I said, about four to six hours. So this is not a fast process, meaning, hey, I take a steroid, I'm gonna immediately start feeling effects. No, go. And like we even talked about with steroids in terms of injections, when we talk about steroid injections, different steroids um, than, than testosterone for sure. I'm not injecting any testosterone for injections, but we expect to see you know benefits over days, not necessarily immediately. Immediately. What happens at these specific sites? So, well, in the muscles, what happens when we have the binding and all that having going on is transcription increases, which increases muscle protein synthesis, which is leads to the hypertrophy. That's like the holy grail for everyone. It also may have anti-catabolic effects on muscle cells. So have you ever heard of the terms anabolism and catabolism? Catabolism is essentially the breaking down of muscle. And so what happens is these androgens like testosterone may actually inhibit the breaking down of muscles. They think that glucocorticoids like cortisol can break down muscle. And so the idea is that testosterone may outcompete cortisol for these binding sites. And that has, that's why it's anti-catabolic. So that's another cool thing to think about. Also may enhance the synthesis of creatine in muscle tissues and creatine is super important. Serves as a source for phosphate for ADP to get it back to AP, ATP, which then gives us more energy and for short burst activity. So, you know, people take creatine to kind of have more of that hanging around so they can work harder, you know, for longer. That's kind of the idea behind it. Gives you more energy. Just giving phosphates for back to ADP to make ATP so we have additional energy. So um, testosterone may do that as well. Also, it may interact with IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor one. It's an anabolic hormone and testosterone increases the release and responsiveness to IGF-1. So long story short, yes, testosterone can help with lots of things related to muscle. And like, that is a huge thing and huge consideration in the fitness world today, but it is definitely just a, you know, it depends on the dose we're using it, it's something that can happen, but it's not like if you're going on testosterone therapy automatically just gonna blow up and be huge. That's not the case at all, but there are some side effects. So from the kidneys as well, there are receptors there. What happens when it binds in there? It actually augments erythropoiesis, which is increasing the red blood cell production. So this is a side effect we look for as well, making sure we're not having too high red blood cells after starting that. There are receptors of the adipose tissue as well. And what happens here is we have increase of lipolytic or fat mobilization, meaning we're kind of increasing the capacity of the cells to move fat and mobilize fat, which may lead to fat loss. Also, a lot of times what happens is estrogen plays a counteracting role to this and helps increase body fat stores in places. So the androgen to estrogen ratio is important for body composition. Once again, why we say for females, they might have a higher, slightly higher body, you know, body fat percentage at baseline, just because of the, that ratio that we're talking about there. There are also receptors at the skin cells and the glands. Androgens increase sebaceous gland activity, which leads to increased oil secretion, can lead to clogged pores and or acne that we've seen of people who are on testosterone or just teenagers in general, and it can also increase facial and body hair growth, but consequently leading to a male pattern baldness. So it's like, okay, you're getting more hair in places, but then also if you have the potential for male pattern baldness, it like triggers that earlier. So kind of confusing there, but that's what happens. And then from the sex glands as well, testosterone may increase libido. It's pretty well known. That's like one of the main indications that we'll talk about in the upcoming episodes is when we have hypogonadism with low libido, that's a reason for testosterone therapy. And so I just also want to touch on the differences between free and bound testosterone. So only a small percentage of testosterone is quote unquote free. So when I mean free, it means it's not bound to some other protein, but the main things that most of them are bound to is either sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG or albumin. And when it's bound, it can't really exert its effects. You know, obviously it can dissolve off or disassociate from the the SHGB or albumin and then exerted effects, but in and of itself, when it's binding, when it's bound to it, it can't exert these effects. 
And so in terms of how does your body choose which one to mind you, oh, it's like there's it's different in terms of quantity. There's about a thousand times greater affinity for sex hormone binding globulin than albumin for testosterone, but albumin is about a thousand times more present. So essentially overall activity is like relatively equal because like they want to bind for it. If they find one, they find SHGB, they're like, oh, let's go. I get it. And they bind, but there's just so many more albumin that like the odds are it's kind of relatively similar. In the body itself, there's about 45% bound SHBG but 53% uh, to albumin and only two-ish percent, anywhere from like I've seen from one to 4%, like two to 4% for males typically are in the free state. So the vast majority is either bound to SHBG or albumin and women typically only about 1%. And so like I said, most of the testosterone we have is not free. It's bound to either SHBG or albumin. That's very important to understand and conceptualize. And then the idea though, is that there's something called like the free hormone test uh, hypothesis where essentially the more free testosterone you have, the more action you'll have. And so the idea is that the more free testosterone we have, the more active it will be. And like I said, but that being said, we do need them bound. So people are just like, what if I just get rid of all, all, all SHBB and albumin? Like, that's a bad idea. But we do need bound proteins as they do protect testosterone from being degraded. They help them transport it throughout the body and give our bodies a stable hormone concentration. So it's kind of like that reservoir, right? You've got a bound, it's kind of waiting in the reserves. Like, hey, we need some. They can mobilize that and, and free that up to do it. So we do need the proteins that they're bound to so we can't just have nothing but free testosterone and specifically shbg the amount of these can be altered depending on estrogen and thyroid hormones and a bunch of other things as well for example if you have a decreased estrogen or thyroid levels may lead to a decrease in shbg and you may say hey that sounds great you know you said shgb if it's not there then we'll probably have more free testosterone but that's not really how it works essentially if you lower the total pool in which um, shbg and testosterone are binding you're going to essentially decrease the amount of testosterone you have as well or another example if an exogenous molecule competes for shbg that gives more free testosterone so that's like on the opposite side of the spectrum where if we had a good case scenario where we're competing for it we have more free testosterone but it's kind of like I said, it's more nuanced than that. But overall, we're saying if things affect SHBG, that can affect our free and total concentration of testosterone. Okay, and so now let's move on to the testosterone estrogen relationship, right? So most people are just like, don't want estrogen. I just want testosterone. Uh, it's not that simple. They are quite intertwined and very important. Testosterone is actually used to synthesize estrogen as a very similar chemical structure. The enzyme aromatase converts testosterone to estrogen and aromatase can be seen all throughout the body, like adipose tissue, liver, gonads, central nervous system, skeletal muscle looks all over the place. And most males do have a small amount of estrogen, but if there are large amounts, it can lead to unwanted side effects like water retention, female breast tissue development, and body fat accumulation. However, estrogen does have benefits, right? So we don't want to just be like, no, I don't want any estrogen. I want all testosterone. There are benefits. First is glucose utilization. So estrogen actually increases G6PD availability, which is an enzyme that helps increase the rate of tissue repair. So that's very helpful as well. Um, from a growth hormone perspective, estrogen plays a crucial role. It stimulates growth hormone, which then triggers IGF-1 that we talked about before, which is responsible for increased anabolic activity. Um, on top of also may act at androgen receptors, estrogen may increase certain amounts of androgen receptors in certain tissues. And so it is important to have estrogen overall. We don't want to say, nope, no estrogen. There's also another kind of similar metabolite to testosterone called DHT. So there's not only estrogenic metabolites, but androgenic ones as one. And DHT or dihydrotestosterone is a metabolite of testosterone that's about three to four times more potent than testosterone, meaning there's a higher affinity for that androgen receptor we talked about previously. So DHT will have a higher affinity binding than testosterone. Testosterone is converted to DHT by 5-alpha reductase enzyme, and 5-alpha reductase is found in high amounts on the prostate, skin, scalp, and liver. So 5-alpha reductases, if you are familiar with that in, in terms of pharmacology at all, these are the medications for not only 
BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia in terms of going, but also for um, balding, you can use those as well. So that makes sense. We have lots of those enzymes in the skin and the prostate as well. DHT can have androgenic side effects as well, though. It can stimulate sebaceous glands, so lead to acne, and scalp may accelerate male pattern baldness. And so when I say those medications, I'm not saying they are um, 5-alpha reductase. We're giving them the enzymes inhibitors, so they essentially slow it down. So if they can increase acne and increase balding, essentially what we do is try to inhibit them so it doesn't have as much. But it does have benefits as well. You might be like, well, those are stupid. They do play a crucial role in central nervous system functioning and may help with neuromuscular functioning and recovery from training as well. So lots of different reasons why we would want to have them as well. And finally, to wrap up our conversation today, we're going to just briefly touch on the different formulations of testosterone. We go kind of into specific dosing more into the next couple podcasts, but the main ones are transdermal, oral or injections in some way transdermal essentially it is some way on the skin whether it's through a patch or a cream or a gel it's painless kind of helps improve compliance and provides a pretty stable day-to-day dose of hormones not a lot of fluctuations like i said typical dosing around 2.5 to 10 milligrams per day and either rub on the gel or patch it's replaced daily um it there is absorption through the skin so it may lead to more dht conversion and increase androgenic side effects so must be careful with that and then also if you're probably putting your skin people can like come and touch you and get that so you have to be careful with like children or female around the house we obviously don't want to have them getting lots of testosterone with, with without intention on there so the injections are typically uh, testosterone sipionate are the, the most common ones i see injections once every one to three weeks depending on how frequently averaging dosing around 200 milligrams like i said we'll talk more about that later levels are highest right away in the first couple days and then slowly decline over weeks so we have this big spike and it kind of goes back down usually requires monitoring to make sure that the hormone levels are suitable in the right range um and oral Oral, we don't really have a lot of ones. We kind of some buccal ones you can put in there and press. Not really used a lot in the U.S. We also do have pellets, which essentially pellets are you have to create a little incision somewhere and put a couple of pellets in there, and those are slow-release pellets. So the nice thing is those those can go last a little longer. But once again, we will talk more about this in the next couple lectures, but those are the general um, formulations of testosterone here in the United States. But overall, I just want to touch on this physiology. I said, this kind of concludes the basic physiology of testosterone. hope this was helpful and you're not sleeping. Uh, I didn't fall asleep halfway through this. If you're listening all to the end, once again, congrats. You are a a true hardcore person, hardcore uh, nerd listening all the way here with me, but I really appreciate it. If you've been following along the whole time, um, if you'd like comment or subscribe, that'd be very helpful. And if you would share this with a friend and leave a five star review, that would really, really help me out. I think that helped get the word out. And that's the best way of other people find this so I can help as many people as possible. But I really, really appreciate listening to you. Thanks so much. Uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Now get off your phone, get outside and we'll see you next time. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.